Are you familiar with the song, I'm Not Afraid Anymore? Well, uh, I can get it out of here. Uh, this is a handwritten song by J.D. Pfeiffer. Did you know, any of you know J.D. Pfeiffer? Huh? Yeah, he was, uh, uh, Donald plays this quite often. Uh, but uh, I got him to give me a copy, make me a copy of the song. Uh, <laughs> but this is even I'm talking about the notes are handwritten you know he wrote he wrote the music and everything and here's one you haven't heard before when I was lost and alone in the night of sin I had no thought of you my heart was cold and dead within. There was no vision of you. But the word of life brought grace and light and showed me the way to you. By the Spirit's power, I was born again, and I found my life in you. Oh, I found my life in you. Now I believe in you, Lord, I believe in you. You are my faithful and true. I believe in you, I believe in you. I give myself to you. I believe in you, I believe in you. Let me spend my forever with you. Let me spend my forever with you. I wrote that one several years ago as I was driving down the road to Sutgart. <laughs> I had been to that men's conference up in Memphis, that February men's conference, and those words started ringing in my head. All right. 1 Corinthians, third chapter, verses 10 through 15. First Corinthians, third chapter, beginning in verse 10. And in keeping with the season, I entitled this, Give Thanks. Give Thanks. The scripture is full of thankfulness. The Psalms, in different places, it says give thanks. Paul often said, I give thanks. And so, in verse 10, 
I have, it just seemed like this fit right in when I was think, trying to think of what was I going to title this. I'd look at verse 10. And there's quite a bit of commentary on this particular passage of Scripture by the commentators of the past. And verse 10, Paul says this, According to the grace of God bestowed on me, So we give thanks, I'll stop right there, we give thanks for Paul's endowment from God. See, he says the grace, and in the amplification it says the special endowment for my task. See, when, when God's grace is given, it enables you to do what you need to do. God never, ever, ever gives an assignment that he doesn't give you the equipment to do it. You can't say, well, I can't do that. Moses did. And what did God say to him? Well, I can't talk good. My name's Moses, and I can't talk good. God said, who made your tongue? Who made your tongue? Don't tell me not to give you an assignment, Moses, because I'm going to equip you for it. But since you want to be contrary, I'm going to get your brother Aaron to go with you, and he's going to be your, your primary speaker. And then they would both minister together. But it's always that way. So we give thanks for Paul's endowment from God because if he didn't do that, if Paul was not endowed of God to do this, then he could not have written what we consider inspired writing. The Bible is inspired. It makes that claim within itself that the prophets of old spoke as they were moved by God. And he told him every word of Scripture is by inspiration. And that means that it comes from God. It's it's put into you by, by God. So we give thanks for Paul's endowment. And what was his endowment to do? To lay the foundation for the church, which can only be Jesus Christ, because it says... Like a skillful architect and master builder, I laid the foundation. But now another man is building upon it, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. You know, Steve knows 
about this stuff, buildings and things like that. I had a friend named Herschel Easter that we used to we used to work together some and we built custom houses. Uh, we did a lot of houses in West Memphis for uh, the lumber company and everything up there and for our individuals up there. And like you, like you said, your house was well built, you know. Uh, you know who, who was the famous builders in this town was the Kessel Brothers. The Kessel Brothers, when they built a house, uh, it, uh, hurricane or tornado put together probably couldn't tear it up. And we used to laugh at Herschel Easter about how many nails he used. We used to, he'd build us a wooden boat. We'd say, it can't float. Got too many nails in it. But we talked about gumbo a while ago. Funny how things that we talk about sometimes come up. And in West Memphis, Easter used to say, it was a good frog pond before they built a city there. Yeah, if you know anything about West Memphis. Uh-huh. Well, the state code for a foundation for a residential dwelling is such and such and such with certain amount of rebar in it. But we never built a foundation like that. We always dug bigger, and we always put more rebar in it because gumbo has a tendency to walk. My cousin lived up at Hafer, and he had an international truck that he'd been using it to work for Goodyear, and then he parked it out in his yard one day, and about a year later, somebody wanted to buy that truck, and they had to lift it out of the ground. Because that gumbo, expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting, that truck was sitting on its running boards on the frame. And it just had sat there like that. So foundations are important. Country Club West Memphis, out west about where the college is now, out toward that way, had some property out there, some nice homes out there, doctors, lawyers, such as that. The corners on those houses, those well-constructed houses, would break off. They'd, they'd crack because they followed the code, and that was gumbo, and it would, they wouldn't stay there. So what we would do is we'd go out there, and we'd excavate around that corner that was broken down like that and we dig under the foundation and get out of there and take one or two cheap hydraulic jacks and we'd put it on we'd put some wooden blocks or something down in there and we'd take that hydraulic jack and we'd jack that house back up until those corners closed up in that mortar and put that tension on that on that house 
and then we'd back a concrete, a concrete truck up there and pour that hole full of concrete under that house. Under Those jacks are still <laughs> down there today under that concrete and blocks of whatever we put there. But we never had one of those corners come back down on one of those houses that we did that way. I'm saying all this to, uh, as, as Paul is doing here. He's using building illustrations to illustrate that what the church is founded on a firm foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, you who to Jesus for refuge have fled? That's that, how firm a foundation. You, you, we've sung it many times, you know. But this is what Paul is saying here. The foundation is so important. Now, you take right here at Crowley's Ridge, you can pour the foundation like the code calls for, and it'll be all right. This land here is not bad about shifting like that. But uh, you go a little further south down there, and uh, it's, it's a different story. And so the foundation is laid according to what you're going to build on it. And that's what Paul says. I have built, laid the foundation, and then others will come along and build on it. So we give thanks for all who follow to carefully build upon this truth so that the Savior is presented and conversion is accomplished. That foundation that Paul laid in the New Testament churches and the Gentile churches is what we are still standing on to this day. It has not cracked it will not crack, it will not fail, and it will stand firm. As long as we, not just the preachers, but we, but especially the preachers, stay in the Scripture. The scriptural building of the church on this foundation and what did Paul's what was Paul's foundation none other than Jesus Christ he is called the cornerstone so we give thanks for the cornerstone see we build upon this foundation using only God-provided doctrine. The doctrine must be God-provided, the Scripture. Other than that, the building will not be proper. Steve, you can pour the best foundation in town and have some jackleg come along and build something on it that, will, that the foundation is still there but the building itself can't, can't stay. It's got to be built properly 
using properly provided materials. The story is told of a man that was a, a builder. And the contractor one day contracted him to build a house. And he told him to build it certain way with certain materials. But he decided to cut corners. And he built a very shabby house. And then when he was done with it, the contractor handed him the deed for it. So in our life, if we don't use God-provided doctrine, we're going to be like that guy. We're going to be standing or leaning or tilting or we're not going to be what we're supposed to be. So we give thanks for the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. We have churches named Cornerstone Church. And that's where this all derives from. Jesus said, have you not read that the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone? See, the Jews rejected him, but he became the cornerstone. What do we have to look at this cornerstone? What characteristics do we have to believe? I have many times in the past been uh, what do I say bothered by this term would you come and accept Jesus as your Savior? Accept Jesus. Smith, if I hand you a dollar, you can accept it, can't you? But that's not what it means to accept Jesus. Chuck Colson, in his book, Born Again, sitting one day out on the east coast somewhere looking out across the ocean pondering this. This had bothered him. Accept Jesus. And it finally dawned on him maybe by inspiration it dawned on him that to accept Jesus we have to accept his incarnation. We have to accept that he came here and took on the bodily form of a servant, a human being with all its emotions and all its nerve endings. He endured heat. He endured thirst. He endured hunger. 
blazing sun, cold winds. He was a full-grown human being. So we have to accept that. See, the Gnostics said no. The Gnostics said that flesh is evil, so therefore he could not have been flesh. That he had to be just some spirit being that you could see. But Jesus said no. We have to accept his divinity. Even in this human body, he was still God. The fancy people up there at the seminary called that a hypostatic union. Now, that means about as much to me as he told me that cornbread are square and pie are round, you know. So, but they call it a hypostatic union. But he was God incarnate in the flesh. He told Philip, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we have to accept his divinity. And we have to accept his teaching. You remember the movie Avatar? I didn't see it, but they had, there was a movie out uh, recently in the recent years called Avatar. In the Hindu religion, an avatar is an emanation from God. It's like an angel that comes and uh, appears to men. And it is, uh, they call it an avatar. It's an emanation from God that comes to them. But they have a belief. So if you're ever talking to a Hindu, you can ask him this. They have a belief that an avatar cannot lie. But they say that Jesus was an avatar. <laughs> he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Was that the truth, Mr. Hindu? If he was an avatar, he had to speak the truth then why aren't you a Christian? You have a religion, but why aren't you a Christian? Because what you, the one you believe was an avatar spoke those words. Dr. Vasu and his wife used to go down to West Horner and they'd buy a new vehicle. And everybody would gather around, Barbara. You know about it? <laughs> They'd gather around to watch the ritual. Before they drove that car away, they put eggs under the, uh, the tires and some other rituals that they did. And they went through a Hindu ritual to make this car a Hindu car. So, you see, they have a religion but they do not have the truth. We have to accept 
his teaching. Jesus said, Go therefore into all the world and do what? Teach them what I said teach. Baptizing them. So we have to accept his teaching. This cornerstone, we also have to accept his atonement. Atonement. He is the only one that's able to atone for our sins. We cannot. Regardless of what they say out in Salt Lake City. Do you know why Gary Gilmore died of firing squad? You know he did. Do you know why he wanted to die by fire squad? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And if he sheds his own blood, then his sins are remitted. So if you are a Mormon and your buddy is a Mormon and he starts to leave Mormonism, you can do him a great big favor by shooting a hole in him. And let his blood run out, and then it's, uh, his sins are atoned for. That's not what the atonement of Jesus is. We have to accept his death. You know why they put him in a tomb, Smitty? Because he was dead. As Jerry, as Jerry Clowers used to say, he was graveyard dead. <laughs> See, there are those who say, oh, no, he just passed out on that cross. And in the coolness of the tomb, he woke up, you know, and he was never really dead. If he was dead, not dead, then that blood we sang about would be useless. Because the Bible says the life is in the blood. And so when we are washed in the blood, we're washed in the life of Jesus. So you see, we have to accept that he died. That he died. That's the reason they put him in that tomb, because he was dead. You think the Romans didn't know when somebody was dead? They were experts at it. On the Appian Way, sometimes there was crosses lined up for miles. And individuals on those crosses were writhing up there. Sometimes as much as three days it took them to die. That's the reason that they wanted to break the bones so that they couldn't do this. Their knees was bent. In order to get a breath, they had to, like that, but the pain was terrible in that foot, in that foot, in that foot, and you come back down. And so you start to suffocate, and then you push back up, and you get another breath, and then you collapse back down. And if they break the, break the legs, they can't do that, and they will suffocate very quickly. So when they went out there to break the legs, they broke the legs on the two, uh, the two thieves, 
where Jesus was already dead. How do we know that, Barbara? That soldier stuck a spear in his side and pierced the pericardial sac. And what run out? Water and blood, right? And any forensic pathologist will tell you that when a person is dead, that the plasma separates from the solids of the blood and it appears as water and the blood will be very thick. And what came out? Why did they put that in the Bible? Just, just to fool these fools that think otherwise. What came out of the pericardial sac? Blood and water. Which means what? He's already dead. You think that Roman soldier didn't know that? He didn't bother to break his legs. Why should he? Because Scripture said not one bone would be broken. So what do you got? You got to accept his death. But then that same little bunch of Roman soldiers there, that they so bad, they're going to guard that tomb because the boss told them to, and you didn't talk back to your boss in those days. <laughs> one time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, only once. And then what? So they're out there drinking some schnapps or something like that, you know. But they're not going to sleep. By the way, there were no chairs in the temple. No priest ever sat down. So when it says Jesus, our high priest, is seated at the right hand of majesty, guess what? That means that his job is done. It is finished, he said. But those guys, they didn't sleep. Not if you were a Roman soldier. I heard about a guy one time was on guard duty and went to sleep. And he heard the corporal of the guard walk up. And he didn't jump up or anything like that. He had his, he was sitting down like this, and he said, Amen. <laughs> you guys that's been in there, you, you appreciate that, don't you? Because <laughs> you know what happens if you get caught sleeping on guard duty. So these guys were not asleep, but they witnessed something. They witnessed that stone being rolled back by an angel. You know why that stone was rolled back? It wasn't to let Jesus out, it was to let us in. Because he didn't have to have the stone rolled back to get out. But we have to accept his resurrection. 
If you do not accept the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. Period. And then those disciples went out there with him on that mountaintop and they saw him. They saw him leave this earth in a cloud. And as they was watching him leave, the voice came. What are you standing around here for? This same Jesus will return in like manner. So we have to accept the fact that he's going to return. He fulfilled every prophecy ever made about him except the one of his return. And that one hasn't been fulfilled yet. But all the others were, so why would we doubt that this one will be? He will return. So Jesus is the cornerstone. And this is what we have to accept when we accept Jesus as Savior. And we give thanks, why? Because he was God's anointed. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ in the Greek. What does it mean? It means the anointed one. He was, he was anointed by God to do this job. To come to earth, to live. He started his ministry when he was 30 years old. Why? Because no Jew could be recognized as a teacher until he was 30 years old. So when you read that little passage there that they went to the blind man's folks and they said, Is this your son that was blind? And he said, they didn't want to get thrown out of the synagogue, of the temple, so they said, ask him. He's grown, which tells me that that man that had been blind and he was, over, he was over 30 years old because he could speak for himself, his parents said. He's grown. That was the Jewish way of doing things. So then verse 12 says this. No, verse 11 is what we've just been talking about. It says, For no other foundation can anyone lay that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Number 12 says, But if anyone builds upon the foundation, whether it be with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Verse 12 says, For the solid rock, we give thanks for the solid rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Revelation 21, 19. Revelation 21, 19 says this. The foundation stones of the wall of the city 
were ornamented with all the precious stones. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, or that's white agate, and the fourth was emerald. The fifth onyx, the sixth thirtieth, seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth cyclopraise, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth was amethyst. So what do we have? All these beautiful, precious stones that we think are so valuable, God says, I use them for building blocks. You think there's something special. I, may, I use them for building blocks. And you think it's pretty from the outside? Wait till you step through the gates. Amen. So we thank God for the solid rock. And the solid rock is pure scriptural teaching. For no other basis is there for a church than pure scriptural teaching. I don't care what you think. If you ever hear me say up here, well, the way I see this, run me off. Right then and there, just somebody get the door and propel me out. Or the way I see it. See, that's where the seminaries get these guys. Well, if you could see it like I see it, then you would understand where I stand. I want the solid rock. I want this pure scriptural teaching. And I want no additions from men. I don't need any indulgences. See, that's what upset Martin Luther. The indulgences. Here I am, a rich businessman in, in Europe at that time. <clears throat> but I sure like them pretty girls. And so I go up to the priest, and I slip him some gold coins, and says, uh, I sure would like to do so and so and so and so and so and so. The priest says, go ahead, you're forgiven already. That's what an indulgence is. You can go do what you want to as long as you pay for it. Pay the church, of course. Pay, you know. No, that's not pure scriptural teaching. And that's what Luther was reading one day. And that's the reason they didn't like him. Because he started saying, but wait a minute, the Bible says, what was one of Billy Graham's favorite expressions? The Bible says, didn't he? The Bible says, so many times. You know why he used that expression so much? Because the word has power. 
If the Bible says it, then it has power. And so Billy Graham built his organization on what? Scripture. Scripture. And no admixture from men. He didn't say, I wonder about sometimes, I, my wife and I watch this show, Moonshiners. Have y'all watched it on television, Moonshiners? Oh, these guys, man, I can always tell when she's got it on. I hear that, I hear that North Carolina twang, and I say, I know what she's listening to because those guys are not thinking their accent. They, they, they actually talk like that, you know. And I often wonder about them, and they sometimes say something about praying and stuff like that. I say, uh, where does it give you license in the scripture to uh, make liquor and, and sell it? But uh, that's a lot of, you know, them hillbilly churches might be a little bit different sometimes, you know. Don't ever know. And then verse 13, 14, and 15, we'll conclude with that. It says this. The work of each one will become openly known, for the day of Christ will disclose and declare it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test and critically appraise the character and worth of the work each person has done. If the work which any person has built on the foundation survives, he will get his reward. But if any person's work is burned up under the test, he will suffer the loss of it, losing his reward, though he himself will be saved, but only as one who has passed through the fire. going to be some saints in heaven that won't be like the three fire the three that came out of the fire is furnished they didn't even have a smoke a smell of smoke on their clothes but there will be some that that day of judgment will show up that all they did if they didn't preach from the pulpit the purest gospel they did something else. They went liberal. Whatever they did. Maybe even through ignorance. Maybe they just didn't know. But they were still Christian. They'll lose it. They'll lose it. It's, it's one of the things that you say, well, Lord, I thought, yeah, but you didn't think enough. And so you, all of this other stuff, you send me some money and I'll send you a handkerchief that'll 
that'll uh, that'll bring healing to you, or or you know, or whatever. Some of these guys, I'm not saying they're not all saved, but some of them are playing silly games, and that is not going to count. That's going to go. When I was going to school, Heath, Arkansas, we had lost our custodian. This was in the, I started in 1941. And us boys, after we got around the fifth grade, we were the ones that took care of the furnace. We had steam heat in that building. Nice brick building and all that had steam heat in it. They dumped that coal through a thing outside on that concrete floor. And that coal gets ground up into powder on the floor, you know, with working it and all that. And we'd have a nice big bed of coals in that furnace, and we'd open that big old iron door on there, and we'd scoop up a scoop full of that, that coal dust, and we'd stand to the side like this and go, like that, and puff the magic rag and come on. Man, that, that thing would belch fire out, and we'd just laugh at that, you know, because that fire, the coal dust, the first diesel engine ever made was fired on coal dust, and you know what it did? Blew up. Rudolph Diesel miscalculated the power of coal dust, and he fired that diesel engine on coal dust and blew it up. And that's what's going to happen to a lot of this works that you see done today by so-called ministers. It's going to go up, poof, in a, in a cloud of smoke. See, for the ways, the way of testing and revealing, that's what we give thanks for, for the way of testing and revealing. In the refiner's fire, not purgatory. This is where the Catholic Church gets a lot of their teaching on purgatory. But it says works, not people. The book says works will be burned up, not people. But as one passed through the fire, you know. So, okay, so you get a little, little puff of smoke on you. Only the truth will survive because it's gold, silver, precious stones. The rewards will be in proportion. I fully expect that Billy Graham's rewards would far exceed anybody we have preaching in this town. But see, you never know what the rewards are. There was a lady that was bedridden in England. Let's call her Mabel. And one day after church, Wilma comes in and says, Oh, you will never believe what we heard in church today. And Mabel said, What? That shoe salesman from America. What's his name? Barbara, I can't call his name right now. Huh? The 
the shoe salesman from America, the great evangelist, uh, uh, Moody. Yeah. Dwight L. Moody is coming to England. And the woman on the bed began to cry. She said, I have been praying for God to send Dwight L. Moody to England. She couldn't get out of her house, but she could pray. And the great revival that Moody held in England, what will be her reward that day? See, rewards will be in proportion. See, pure gospel will be rewarded. But if not from heaven, anything that's not from heaven will be destroyed. Adrian Rogers said, the prayer that reaches heaven is the prayer that starts in heaven. So ask the Holy Spirit for guidance when you pray. And see, those prayers get answered. But the stuff, the funny stuff, will not be rewarded. And it says salvation is sure, but rewards may be few. Salvation is sure. But rewards, it says, may be few. Why? Because somebody didn't work like they were supposed to. And not all people are supposed to be great evangelists. The person that goes to church, that supports the missionaries, that does all the things that we as Christians are supposed to do, that person's rewards will be there. The only reward you look for is well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. And God will be fair. Well, I'm, a, I'm with John Miles. John Miles said, I'm sure glad that God's not fair because if I got what I deserved, <laughs> if I got what I deserved. So he says he thanks God for his mercy. And that's what we, ba that's what we base it all on is God's mercy. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, and your wonderful word that teaches us that we are to be thankful for Paul and his ministry because it still carries on to this very day on that firm foundation and that building built in spiritual truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.